Hey everyone, I'm Liam McCollum and this is the first episode of hopefully many interviews to come. I don't really know what I want to do with this, maybe create a podcast or something like that, but I'm mainly doing these interviews for my own entertainment as of now. Got to do a couple of things like this in high school and I'm still kind of doing that with the newspaper here at the university, so I really enjoy it. Today I'll be interviewing Scott Horton editorial director of antiwar.com and author of Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, where he logs the history of the Afghanistan war and makes a pretty good case for leaving. He is also the director of the Libertarian Institute and has more than 5,000 interviews with foreign policy experts and other libertarians. I think he has like an archive of a bunch of interviews with Ron Paul over the years, and they're all pretty great. So here's Scott Horton. Hey Scott, thanks for coming on today. Um, today I kind of just wanted to talk about everything going on and all these kids on the internet wondering if they're going to be drafted, just how we got to where we're at. I know you say that we're currently in Iraq War 3.5 or maybe even 4, but could you kind of take us back and tell us where we got into this mess, maybe how President Carter messed this all up for us and just tell us how we got to where we're at now? Sure. I'll try to do this fast. I guess I'll say first that if you go to antiwar.com slash Scott, my most recent article is called Iraq War 4. And in there, I go through and I break down for you and give you a little summary. And what I mean by that, Iraq War 1 is uh, otherwise known as Desert Storm, George Bush Sr.'s war in 1991. Iraq War 2 is his son's war, 2003 through 11. And then Iraq War 3 is the ISIS war, Obama's war against the Islamic State Caliphate from 2014 through 17. So when I say three and a half now, I'm talking about essentially the mopping up war against, not that it's productive, but that's what they call it, um, the fighting against what's left of ISIS in Western Iraq, which is essentially al-Qaeda in Iraq. Um, you know, the, the as, as Trump says, the territorial caliphate no longer exists, but there's still ISIS guys running around. So we have about 5,000 troops there fighting them. That's Iraq War three and a half, okay. And that takes us up to the current situation with the conflict with Iran. If you'd like me to go back to Carter, it goes real simple like this. And I'm writing a book about this, and this is just the outline is chrono chronological like this. After the Iranian Revolution of 1979, Jimmy Carter backed Saddam Hussein's invasion of Iran. And then under Ronald Reagan, he continued that same policy of backing Iraq against Iran. At the same time, back in the Mujahideen, Carter and Reagan continued it. Carter started it, Reagan continued it. Backing not just the Afghan war against the Soviets, but the Arab-Afghan mercenaries who all traveled there to fight against the Soviet Union through the 1980s. Okay. Then at the end of the Iran-Iraq war, Iraq invades Kuwait over war debts. It's a big, long, complicated thing, but essentially it was a, it was a consequence of the last war. He was somewhat baited into it by the Americans. But then the Americans launched Iraq War I, Desert Storm, Bush Sr.'s war, in order to force Iraq out of Kuwait. Now, importantly, at the end of that war, Bush Sr. told the supermajority Shiite Iraqis in the predominantly Shiite south and east of the country, and as well as the Kurds, the 20% minority Kurds in the north, that they ought to rise up and overthrow the Saddam Hussein regime and said so over Voice of America. And they did rise up. But then Bush Sr. changed his mind and he allowed Saddam Hussein to keep his attack helicopters and tanks 
And this is when America was occupying the south of the country at the time. Right. And allowed Saddam Hussein to crush the uprising and kill more than 100,000 people. And the reason why is because they realized that the uprising was being led by Iranians and Iranian-backed militias that were coming across the border. In other words, they just spent the 1980s supporting Saddam Hussein in order to contain the Iranian Revolution of 1979. Right. And here they were importing it. And so they went, no, let's stop. And they choked and they called it off. But see, then that became the excuse to stay in Saudi Arabia at the basis that they had established to fight the war all through the rest of the 1990s. Because you see, oh, we have to protect the Shiite majority from Saddam Hussein's tyranny. And so we have to have these no-fly zones and we have to have these sanctions, this blockade, total blockade, um, uh, economic war against Iraq has to continue through the whole 1990s. Now, this is what really turns Ronald Jimmy Carter and then Ronald Reagan's former mercenaries who fought in the Afghan war in the 80s against the United States. Right. Was that we had our combat forces occupying Saudi Arabia and killing Iraqis from those bases in Saudi Arabia. And this isn't just their land, their country, the way we would feel about it, but it's holy land, Mecca and Medina, uh, birthplace of Muhammad and all of this. Mm -hmm. So you think how much uh, you would resent them occupying San Antonio near our Alamo. <laughs> well, they're just like that, only multiplied by exponents. Right. But same, same sort of sentiment, right? So this is what drove them to attack us. It doesn't make them good guys by any measure. Just because we're the empire doesn't mean they're Han Solo. It does because they do target civilians. They're butchers and war criminals. Mm -hmm. But it does mean that America is the superpower. America is the dominant force in the Middle East, and that's what they're fighting about. That's why they attacked us. So then what does Bush do? Leave aside Afghanistan for the moment. That's what Bush did and went on to Iraq. And what did he do when he started Iraq War II? W. Bush, in 2003, what did he do? He picked up right where his father left off, and he put those exact same Shiites that Bush Sr. panicked and decided not to put in power, and he put them in power. Right. Not only did he get rid of Saddam Hussein for them, but he stayed and fought an eight-year civil war for them. And with the help of the U.S. Army and Marine Corps, the Shiite forces, backed by Iran, including led by the parties most loyal to Iran were the ones that America was most loyal to. They never returned the favor. But out of all the factions, the two most closely tied to the Iranian regime among the Iraqi Shiites were Dawa and Skiri. Skiri is an acronym that's the Supreme Council for Islamic Revolution in Iraq. It's now called the Iraqi Supreme Islamic Council. They are the, the political faction that owns the Badr Brigade, which is their armed militia. Mm -hmm. These were the guys who were coming across the border in 1991 that Bush Sr. panicked about. These are the guys that Bush Jr. put on the throne. These are the guys that when Bush Jr. created a democracy, he created a government that was absolutely dominated, not by the people of the supermajority Shiites, but by their political rulers and in these particular fashions. Now, this is a big problem, you see, because the Americans didn't fight this war so that they could empower the Iranian Ayatollah. It's just that they're as stupid as they are criminal. And so their big you know, bank heist went badly. What ended up happening 
was they empowered their strategic rival. Now, we got to be frank about this. Iran is not really the enemy of the United States. They've never really done anything to us. What they are is they're an obstacle to our government's attempt to dominate their region. They were our loyal sock puppet state for 25 years until they had this revolution in 79 and declared independence from us. And that is not allowed. That was the crime of Cuba. It wasn't being communist. It was being independent and refusing to kowtow. And so they must be made an example of. And that's the deal. Now, the problem with America's government is that everything they do is simply close enough for government work. They don't know how to wage a world revolution. They don't know how to remake the Middle East in a way that is more amenable to Middle Eastern interests. They could have left bad enough alone. But they went and they kicked over the whole thing, and they ended up empowering the Iranians. Now, in 2006, after Bush is really in the middle of ensconcing these very same factions in power, he's learning to regret it. And he's being told by his people that, really, we're fighting this war for Iran right now, and all of our Sunni kings in Saudi Arabia, all our allies are angry at us. The Israelis are angry, even though they you know, helped push us into this thing didn't work out the way they thought either. And so now what are we going to do? And here's a good keyword for everybody to Google, the redirection. And this is an article by Seymour Hirsch from the year 2007. And it's about a policy decided in 06. And it could be called, oops, the big screw up. But now what are we going to do about it? The redirection, we're going to tilt back toward the Saudi king. Very sorry, your highness, for giving Iraq to Iran's best friends. But now we're going to tilt back toward whatever it is that you want. And that ended up meaning in the Bush years, support for bin Ladenite type terrorist groups. Even as our guys were still fighting against bin Ladenite, Al-Qaeda in Iraq type uh, members of the Sunni-based insurgency in Iraq, Bush was already turning around and starting to back them again in Lebanon, Syria, and in Iran, where uh, Israel and America both backed a group called Jandullah that went around cutting officers' heads off and doing suicide bombings and all the worst kind of bin Ladenite-type terrorist uh, attacks against Iran. Mm -hmm. Again, led by the Shiites, Iran led by the Shiite Ayatollahs that America hates so much. So this is what explains Barack Obama's high treason in Syria. Probably everybody in your audience scratched a hole in their head wondering why Barack Obama was backing al-Qaeda in Syria. It's not because he's a secret Muslim from Kenya and all that silly birther stuff. That's not it. It's because he's George W. Bush. The policy didn't change between Bush and Obama. Obama inherited the policy from Bush, the redirection. We have to try to make it up to our Sunni allies in the region that we empowered Iran so terribly in Iraq. And so we can't reverse Iraq War II and kick all the Shiites out of Baghdad and give it back to the Sunnis. That ship has sailed. But we can focus on getting rid of Assad in Damascus, Syria. He's the other Arab ally of Iran after Baghdad now. And so he's a good consolation prize. So that is why Barack Obama backed the al-Qaeda terrorists, the bin Ladenite terrorists. You know, they were a very small faction of the Sunni insurgency in Iraq War II. They led the Sunni insurgency in Syria, big time. And by the way, that oversimplifies it. There are many, many Sunnis, maybe the majority of Sunnis who sided with the government there, just as every other ethnic and political faction did. 
um, against the bin Ladenites. But America, Saudi, Qatar, Turkey, and Israel poured in billions of dollars worth of guns and training even weapons and supplies for a bin Ladenite insurgency against Assad in order to try to weaken Iran. And it's straight out of the mouth of Barack Obama in, in the Atlantic magazine. Oh, you know, a great way to hurt Iran would be to get rid of Assad. Absolutely, he says. That's exactly what we're doing right now. It's in the out of the mouth of John Kerry, his secretary of state, that, yes, we saw the rise of ISIS, but we thought we could manage. We thought that we could use that to pressure Assad to resign. In other words, they were deliberately encouraging the rise of the Islamic State in eastern Syria because they thought the threat of it moving west would force Assad to somehow compromise. It makes no sense anyway, <laughs> that he would somehow give up his seat to somebody else and then on the promise that America and its allies would stop backing ISIS, and that's how he would save Damascus from the bin Ladenites would be quitting. I mean, the whole thing is sounds preposterous anyway, but then guess what? As you already know, 2014, ISIS didn't move west to Damascus. They went east into western Iraq and conquered the whole thing and declared the holy caliphate out of the Bible and whatever. And so uh, out of their Quran. And so um, this is what then caused Iraq War Three, where Obama had to say, boy, talk about the redirection and the big oops. Now he has to go back to the Shiites. Now he allies America again with the Iranian-backed factions in Iraq that we wish we hadn't fought Iraq War II for, and now we have to fight Iraq War III for them in order to destroy the Islamic State. So America supplied all the air power, the Shia and the Kurds on the ground, led by the Iranians on the ground, and yes, including American Special Operations Forces and CIA, led the war to destroy the caliphate. So then that brings us up to where we are now, where America is so mad that they fought two wars for Iran's best friends in Iraq, that now they're bombing their best friends. Now they're bombing the guys that they put in power. When they killed Soleimani, he was with one of the leaders of the Bada Brigade, the very same guys that Donald Rumsfeld and David Petraeus turned into the Iraqi army. The same guys that we fought Iraq War II and Iraq War III for are the guys that we're bombing. Because that's how much the Americans hate the results of the last 20 years of killing a million people over there. Yeah. It's not for nothing. It's for all chaos and disorder and, and no achieving of the protection of any American interest whatsoever. And now the only answer is for them to just quit and for them to just say, you know what, we got to quit while we're behind here. Everything that we do is counterproductive for the American people's national interest, which is keeping the bin Ladenites down, and even the American empire's interest, which is limiting the influence of the Iranians. Mm -hmm. On both counts, they've done nothing but ruin everything. And so the best thing now would be for all of us to insist that they just quit. Right. We don't have anything to really fight Iran about. They don't threaten us. They're not making nuclear weapons. They don't have the slightest ability to hurt Israel, even if they really meant it. Usually the, when they're talking the worst bad-mouthing about Israel is when they're secretly meeting behind the scenes. And <laughs> I mean, there's no fear. There's no reason that anyone needs to consider Iran a threat to America other than to the egos of the American policymakers who have ruined everything for the last 17 years straight. And so um, 
you know, that's the big deal. People don't need, you asked in your first question originally there, if people need to fear that they're going to be drafted in a new war. Right. The reality is there's nothing to fight with Iran about. Mm-hmm. Okay. There's nothing that we have so much to, and that's, this doesn't mean that war could not happen, but it means that there is no even slightly half reasonable reason to fight them. Right. Only completely ridiculous ones and, and ones that can't hold up at all. Um, and so, you know, um, I, well, and let me elaborate one more point on if America fights Iran, everybody knows that America could decimate Iran, even without nukes. America has the air power to eventually at least, you know, main, uh, achieve and maintain air dominance over their country and bomb the hell out of it to kingdom right. come. Nobody questions that. And probably if it really came to a full scale war. That's probably a lot what it would look like. And I think that the Iranians think that, too. However, even though they don't have a navy that threatens us, they have like two battleships and a bunch of fiberglass speedboats. They have no blue water navy whatsoever. They don't threaten. They have nothing. The only air force they have are F-4s and F-14s that Richard Nixon gave them back before I was born. You should see the gray in my beard here. Um, and uh, they have no land army that they could field anywhere, maybe a few miles into Iraq or Afghanistan, but they could not take over any country anywhere uh, in the region or anything like that. They have no... Um, you know, force projection capability whatsoever. Mm. But they do have missiles, thousands of missiles, mid-range ballistic missiles, ground-to-ground missiles that put all of our guys in Afghanistan, Kuwait, uh, UAE, Bahrain, and Qatar. We have a the fifth fleet is based in Bahrain. We have a huge air base in Qatar, air bases all over Saudi Arabia and even Oman and UAE. And plus all of those economic targets, a jillion dollars worth of economic targets, all up and down the West Bank of the Persian Gulf there. And so that means that war with Iran would just absolutely be cost prohibitive, period. It would be uh, it's mutually assured destruction. Not that they could hit New York City, not that they could hit your hometown in a million years, not with anything more than, you know, a car crash or something stupid. in terms of what they can do to America's position in the region, they can ruin it. Oh, and also they have their allies in Hezbollah and southern Lebanon who can rain thousands of missiles down on northern Israel as well. Right, yeah, I was I was actually about to say, because um, they, they also have a bunch of proxies and, I mean, all around the region, right? Is that... I mean, when we look at yeah, all the conflicts... Yeah, they can hit targets, they can hit economic targets right. anywhere in Europe, who knows where in the world. But the thing is, I'm not trying to scare people with that. I'm essentially saying, this is why we're not going to fight. This is why everybody likes talking tough. The Americans like picking on the Iranians, but they don't really want to fight them because the Iranians got at least one good uppercut in there, and they know it. And so um, I think people should not panic, but they should be concerned. You know, this stuff does matter. And the reality is – and listen, I'm far from alone on this. There are plenty of very credentialed and official people who completely agree with the idea that Bush or Obama or Donald Trump right now could go to Tehran, could meet the Ayatollah, could say, forget bygones. That's all everybody else's fault. Let's work things out and everything would be fine. You know who used to say that? Dick Cheney. Dick Cheney, when he was the CEO of Halliburton in the 90s, used to denounce Bill Clinton's sanctions on Iran and say, look, we just want to do business with these guys. After all, Ronald Reagan sold the missiles within months of the Beirut attack of 1983, right? Mm-hmm. Business is business, man. People want to invoke some ancient truck bombing, which is a horrible thing. If you're 
if you had a cousin who died in the Marine Beirut uh, barracks bombing of 1983, it's horrible as hell. But in terms of international relations and politics for the future of humanity, we don't have to continue to hold that grudge. Right. Ronald Reagan sold the missiles within months after that. That means that for good or for ill, adults have to find ways to you know, work around these problems. <laughs> right. And, you know, and, and that we can. Right, exactly. And yeah, I was I was actually going to talk on the point um, about having no reason you because I do listen to just a bunch of different perspectives, both left and right, just to see what they're saying about this issue. And I mean, so like they specifically, I mean, obviously, Republicans will mention that we need to uphold our interests in the Middle East and stuff like that. But then um, people on the left will will mention like protections of the Kurds and stuff like that. So is it I mean, is there anything to the fact that the Kurds abstained from voting to the um, in the Iraq resolution? Uh, but I mean, so what? Look, the reality is, let's just say hypothetically, they demand that we stay. Is it up to them to decide whether we stay or not? And and besides, the reality is they don't need us. They have an alliance. They have since 2003, since before that, since the Shiite uprising of 1991. The Kurds were in on that. And all through Iraq War II and through all through Iraq War III and to this day, it's been primarily a Shiite-Kurdish coalition mm -hmm. that dominates in the parliament. The Kurds don't have as much say, but in Iraq War II, America was on that side with those two major groups against the Sunni Arabs. The Kurds are Sunnis primarily, but they're Kurds, not Arabs, so that's the split there. And, you know, plus the political factions, of course, and all that. Yeah. Uh, but so the Kurds don't need us. The Iraqi Kurds, they have a great semi-autonomy in the north and a reasonable working relationship with Baghdad and are no longer threatened by the Islamic State in the Sunni West. And in fact, you know, let's talk about this. In Iraq War II, the surge, you know, Donald Rumsfeld, of all people, okay, he was the hawk. He said, we should go now in the middle of the crisis, right? The worst of the Civil War, which was largely his fault, not just for invading, but for taking the side of the Bada Brigade as long as he already had by that point. But he said, listen, we should go. And he was condescending about it. He said, we should take the training wheels off. They're either going to figure out how to work together or they're not. But we got to stop holding their hand. So it's sort of like, you know, kick them off the welfare, teach them how to get a job. Tough love kind of Republican sort of point of view. But right. you know what? It was perfect, and for for the time anyway. All other things being equal, right? And the and the situation we were already in, that was the right answer. But what did Bush do? Bush fired him, and brought in Gates and Petraeus to oversee the surge to double down the war. But what did that do? It didn't achieve any of the benchmarks that they said it was going to achieve. Provide peace in the capital city so that political factions could come together and reconcile and figure out how to work together in a democracy. None of that happened. All that really happened was, to put it in Rumsfeld's terms, they kept the training wheels on. They let the Iraqi Shiite state that we were building rely on the Army and the Marine Corps to do all of their meanest fighting for them, to help them finish and complete their sectarian cleansing of the capital city and their total victory against the Sunnis. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, they picked a, a meaningless fight with Muqtad al-Sadr, one of the major Shiite leaders, um, 
and got a bunch of people killed for nothing there, including about 500 Americans there. Of course, you hear them on TV now blaming every single one of those deaths on Iran, which is a joke. Sadr was the most nationalist of the Shiite leaders. We were backing the most Iranian-backed leaders as well. Sadr wanted to limit the influence of America and Iran. That's why they targeted him. And all the bombs that his forces fought back with, those EFP bombs, are proven a hundred ways from Sunday of all being made in Iraq by Iraqis. Those Copper Corps EFP improved roadside bombs. None of them came from Iran. And the reason the reason no one could prove that any of them ever came from Iran was because it wasn't true that any of them had ever come from Iran. There's a total propaganda campaign at the time then. And anyway, uh, so in that surge though, what America did was they deprived the Shiite group that they had put in power of the very last of any incentive that they might have had to compromise with the Sunni Arabs. If they still had to share the capital city with them, population-wise, 50-50, the way it had been, there's a huge incentive to compromise. Instead, America helped the Shiites cleanse the city of Baghdad, where it's a 90% Shiite city. Mm -hmm. They helped them essentially get a total victory over the Sunnis, and then, again, they picked the very meanest groups to put in power, and the prime minister, Bush's guy and Obama's guy too, Nuri al-Maliki, his attitude was those Sunnis can all go burn in the sun. Screw them. Their minority dictatorship days are over. They lost, and he was the meanest poor sport about it. See, all the oil is in the south and in, near Kurdistan. And none of it really is in, none of the developed oil is in the predominantly Sunni Arab regions of the country. And so when they don't control the national government, they don't control any of the patronage. And instead of sharing, like David Petraeus promised was going to happen, yeah, you're all going to get jobs in the government, you're all going to get jobs in the police and the army, and you're all going to get, you know, your share of the patronage from the oil wealth. Um, but so what happened was, and that was exactly how Maliki and his government felt, and that meant that from the time... At, from the end of the surge all the way through the rise of the Islamic State, you just had the predominantly Sunni west of the country just festering and waiting to explode again. Mm -hmm. And so that was why when the Islamic State came rolling in, it was wide open for the taking. And this remains a problem in the aftermath of Iraq War III that— Oh, ISIS likes throwing people off buildings? Well, we'll throw you off buildings. ISIS likes raping people? Well, we're going to rape your widows then. Yeah. And this kind of thing. And it's just full retribution, eye for an eye stuff. And there's been, there's not too much reporting on this, but there's been a few reports about, for example, these massive refugee camps full of widows of accused ISIS members and their rape babies from the Iraqi security forces, the Shiite-dominated forces coming and having their way every night. I mean, it is really bad, and it's just setting the stage for future crisis there. Yeah. Certainly, again, obviously, everything I just said, all this crisis caused by U.S. intervention under Bush and under Obama in every way, and certainly nothing that America can do anything to fix. Right. Yeah, and uh, you mentioned the Islamic State right there, and a point you made earlier is kind of, you were talking about how the reason why um, they attacked us, I think you were referencing 9-11, and then our backing of ISIS and Al-Qaeda forces in certain areas and how it always turns back on us. Um, can you, I, I, I think it's a little weird, um, or a lot of people don't really understand when we say that you, the United States often backs its enemies. Can you Can you kind of expand on that? I mean... A lot of people don't know that we've actually done a lot of things 
that back the people who actually attacked us on 9-11 or um, backing ISIS fighters before we turned on them. Well, yeah, I mean, if you want to go back uh, again, you know, to the rise of al-Qaeda, and this, this was, um, I'm going to turn your speakers down there. I'm getting a little feedback here. Um, essentially, in the 1980s, when uh, Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan had started backing the uh, Mujahideen, the Afghan Mujahideen against the Soviet Union, that was an, a, a deliberate attempt to bait them into invading. And they did invade, although it's not a direct connection, really, between the bait and them coming. They were sort of coming anyway, I think. But anyway, the point was that America was trying to lure them into the Afghan trap. And then they didn't just support the Afghan Mujahideen. But they also worked with the Saudis and the Pakistanis to support what was called the Arab Afghan Army, which meant essentially holy warrior types from all across the Middle East and even Central Asia and, and Indonesia and the Philippines and other places who all came to fight uh, against the Soviets. And that was where bin Laden was wounded three times in battle. And not only that, had contributed millions of dollars to the effort, brought bulldozers and things to build bases and what have you, that kind of thing. And there was a guy named Abdullah Azam, and there's a brand new book about him that I actually have but haven't gotten into yet. Um, and he was the leader of the Arab-Afghan army for the most part. And it was his group that bin Laden inherited at the end of that war. And then the reason really that they turned against the United States was they decided essentially this Azam group merged with Egyptian Islamic Jihad, which was led by Ayman al-Zawahiri. And they were like a very right-wing radical breakoff group of the Muslim Brotherhood who are, you know, more interested in participating in democracy and are sort of – they're Islamists, but they're conservatives rather than radicals, if you take my meaning there. Mm -hmm. And so Zawahiri went and joined Egyptian Islamic Jihad with bin Laden's group, and the idea was to target the far enemy, the United States. Instead of attempting to kill King Fahd in Saudi Arabia and overthrow the kingdom there or trying to assassinate Hosni Mubarak, after all, they had assassinated Anwar Sadat in Egypt and they just got Mubarak. It didn't work. Why didn't it work? Because the Americans were there. The Americans decide who's the pharaoh of Egypt. America is the eight trillion ton gorilla in, in every bit of this discussion. And so as long as that's true, they said, local revolution is hopeless. And are we ever supposed to create a divine caliphate with a bunch of secular dictators and others, whatever dictators, backed by the United States in our way? So they decided to target the United States. Also, this made sense since it was such a multinational group that instead of focusing on Egypt or Saudi or Jordan or one or the other, that favored the interests of jihadists from those countries and what they wanted to do. Let's all compromise by targeting the USA instead. And that was a way that everybody could feel like they were not being – the other guy wasn't being favored, and they were all kind of splitting the difference, right? right. Bureaucratic politics inside <laughs> al-Qaeda, really important. And so um, – but then the idea was – and this is, to me, the key to the whole thing, right, is they weren't trying to scare us away by knocking down the towers. They were trying to make us mad. They're trying to give us a – give our government a crisis to exploit, an excuse to go wild. And 
at the time, it seemed they're crazy. They thought they would fight the American empire by staging an attack like that. I mean, that's only going to kick them in the pants. That's only going to put them in high gear. Right. But see, that's the genius of it. That was the point. Just like America backed the Mujahideen in order to bait the Soviets into invading Afghanistan, this is exactly what they were doing to us. Right. Trying to get us to replicate the war we had helped them fight against the Russians, but with us in the place of the Russians. And so what America do? Exactly that. And the point being, because Afghanistan is the size of Texas and landlocked behind a mountain range and with mountains and deserts and, you know, completely inhospitable terrain and a tribal population armed to the teeth and all this, it means that no matter how many of them we kill, we can't win ever. And the idea was to break America's empires back on the rocks of Afghanistan just the way that we had helped them do to the Russians. Yep. Now, what's our government done? Oblige them 100 percent. This is what you want us to do to ourselves. This is what we'll do to ourselves, of course, at the people of Afghanistan's expense as well. Yep. And so if that's true, which it is, then that means how do you look at now Iraq War II, Libya, Syria, Yemen, Somalia, any of the chaos that America has spread in the era of the terror wars since Afghanistan and during, you know, of course, I've been in Afghanistan the whole time, but since the start of that war, all the rest of this, this is all just icing on the cake. This is all just wildly beyond bin Laden's, you know, most daring fantasies about what he would like to see in the region. The only place we've fallen short is we haven't put him on the throne in Riyadh and Zawahiri on the throne in Cairo. But other than that, we have essentially done our government has doing has been doing exactly what the enemy wanted. And I'm, and people sometimes get mad at me for this because it sounds like I'm saying George Bush is innocent because of how stupid he is. But I don't think that those are exclusive concepts like that. I mean, the reality is what bin Laden was betting on. Again, as I said, he gave Bush a crisis to exploit. He wasn't just playing with Bush's emotions. He knew he was giving Bush a big, fat excuse. But it's also true that Bush is dumb enough that Bush did not see that. Bush had no wisdom whatsoever. Bush said, wow, great, a crisis. Let's exploit it. And, of course, that's what everyone in his administration wanted to do, too. And so it was on, essentially. There was no way to, to turn that thing off. But what have we gotten for it all? Besides six trillion dollars wasted, seven thousand something troops killed, seventy thousand something of them wounded, a million dead Iraqis, half a million dead Syrians, half a million dead Somalis, half a million dead Yemenis, at least hundreds of thousands, a couple of hundred thousand Libyans, thousands, tens of thousands of dead Malians. Uh, in Pakistan, tens of thousands, hundred better than a hundred thousand people dead in Pakistan from Obama's drone war and war against the Pakistani Taliban that never did anything to us in 2009 and 10. This whole thing has just been absolute chaos. None of these people had anything to do with the attack on us. The attack on us was perpetrated by 400 men. Yep. This was a, it, you know, one of the things that, and I've heard this for a lot from people, you know, I've, I've learned this from, from hearing other people kind of musing about it. That, they reacted to 9-11 the way people reacted to Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm. And after all, it's almost a perfect analogy. 3,000 dead, surprise attack in the morning and all of this stuff. 
And even on TV, they would say, oh, they've awakened a sleeping giant, as though the American empire had gone to sleep one moment since 1941. <laughs> but anyway, the parallel was there, except here's the difference. Uh, there was such a thing as the Japanese empire. Mm -hmm. The bin Laden empire was literally a campground in the White Mountains of eastern Afghanistan. Exile, no man's land, as far as you can get from anywhere without already being on your way back again the other direction. Okay, so there was, it, and it's a big ironic part of the thing, right? Because, you know, geographical access had nothing to do with the equation. All that had to happen was a German, um, pardon me, an Egyptian engineering student studying in Hamburg, Germany, had to take a short trip to Afghanistan to meet the guy and accept, you know, a list of phone numbers, right? So, but in the American people's imagination, we had to go to war to defend ourselves with an evil, with a power on the scale of the Japanese empire of World War II. But meanwhile, there was nobody to fight. It was just a few hundred guys. And then of course, what did Bush do? He let them go because, and it's pretty obvious why. He needed to say that Saddam Hussein is friends with Osama. But if the American people thought that bin Laden is dead and so we got our retribution and the war is over, then that wouldn't have been a very affecting talking point, would it? And so he was better on the run as an Emmanuel Goldstein enemy figure, like the character in 1984, where there's permanent enemy out there who threatens you. And by the way, I can tell you're kind of a young guy in the video here. Um, you might not remember exactly how it was in, say, oh, I don't know, 2006, that, hey— Need I remind you, Osama bin Laden is still out there threatening this country. Is that, I mean, they use that They're, to the nth degree, to the very last day. They they exploited that fear that they had created themselves, yeah. essentially. And, you know, I think not to pick a fight with 9-11 truthers, because Lord knows there ain't much mileage in it. But I think the reason a lot of people became 9-11 truthers was because the government's explanation of what happened was so crazy. Yep. That first of all, they wanted to conflate al-Qaeda with the Taliban. Well, the Taliban are kind of the most hillbilly of hillbillies in the world, right? These guys are from the mountains of Afghanistan. And so you look at the footage of where they live in these houses with no roofs and stuff, and you're going, oh, yeah, sure. We got attacked by these masterminds from the town of Bedrock out there in no man's land. I mean, it's crazy. It makes no sense. Meanwhile, that's not who did it, right? Bin Laden and, and his lead hijacker, Atta, are both engineering, you know, had engineering PhDs. Right. Bin Laden's the son of a billionaire. Ayman al-Zawahiri was a surgeon from Cairo. These are highly educated, worldly gentlemen. They're not cavemen. They're not these backwards, crazy people. Our government was lying that the Taliban had attacked us. They hadn't. Al-Qaeda had. Mm -hmm. And they were happy to conflate those things. But you can see why people said that doesn't make sense that a bunch of cavemen were able to get away with this. And then, of course, why were these cavemen motivated to attack us? Oh, just because their backwards caveman religion says that they have to bring down North America. Right. Well, that's just stupid. It doesn't make any sense, does it? And so people look for other explanations. And the real explanation is these guys are Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan's former mercenaries that George Bush and Bill Clinton turned against us, that George Bush Jr. failed to, to protect us from and then exploited the violence of to you know, quadruple the, quadruple the crisis, which Obama then almost unbelievably made— 10 times worse than Bush made it.
by literally taking these guys' side, deliberately taking their side in Libya and in Syria and creating the Islamic State and this whole crisis. And not to let Trump off the hook, because while he hasn't taken the side of the— oh, well, actually, that's not true. Well, I'll finish the sentence. He hasn't taken the side of the al-Qaeda terrorists in Syria. He has taken their side in Yemen. And he continued the war against them every other place. And that's broadly defined, too. That's when you throw in, you know, anyone who claims uh, jihad in Libya or in Somalia, that kind of thing. But in Yemen, just like—and he inherited the war from Obama. Obama started it five years ago. But Donald Trump has continued it for three years. He Mm -hmm. has continued the war that is for the Saudi-UAE-Al-Qaeda alliance against their enemies, the Houthis, because the Houthis are friends with Iran. And by the way, Iran's influence with the Houthis has only grown and grown the whole time. Not that they were ever the Iranians' cat's paws, like in the fake excuse for the war, but it's becoming more and more true now as a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm -hmm. And by the way, when I say al-Qaeda in Yemen, that's not BS. That's not when you know when they say Al Shabaab is Al Qaeda in Somalia. Come on, man, stop stretching definitions of things in order to try to make it, this seem justified. But when you talk about Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, they blew up the coal in the year 2000 and killed 17 sailors and almost sank our battleship. They tried to blow up a plane over Detroit on Christmas Day 2009 with the underpants bomb. They tried again to set off a uh, package bomb and printer cartridges uh, over Europe. They also did the Charlie Hebdo attack in France, and one of the other attacks in France, I think, at the concert was tied directly to al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. One of the main hijackers, one of the pilot hijackers' father-in-law ran the switchboard house there in Aden, where they did their communication back and forth with the guys in Afghanistan. That's real al-Qaeda, and America is on their side right now. Yep. And Trump hasn't scaled back a single one of these wars, and and that would be the one most, you know, requiring immediate cessation. But, you know, he talks a good game sometimes about ending the occupations in Afghanistan and Syria. Um, he ignores the rest, but he never follows through on either of those. Right. Is there is there anything going on or any update in other parts of the Middle East right now? Like, um, we haven't heard much, or at least I haven't heard much since... Uh, we claim to have left Syria. I know that we actually didn't. But how are the Kurds in Syria now? Because I know that was a big concern. Like, oh, if we leave Syria, the Kurds will be left and they'll be obliterated by the by Turkey. So is there any update on that? Yeah, no, yeah. If obliterated means low hundreds killed, yeah. you know, all that stuff was very hyperbolic. The reality was, again, Obama created that crisis for the Kurds in the first place that then he did come to help them, protect them from ISIS after ISIS had killed uh, a lot of them. But the caliphate is destroyed. They're no longer, you know, required. They're no longer a necessary ally of America to fight against the Islamic State that America had created against them in the first place. Yeah. And at some point, the question was obvious all along, really. When are we going to turn back toward our allies, the Turks? Mm-hmm. The Turks have been in NATO for 70 years. They're our ally, and to them, and not without cause, the Kurds and their political factions in Syria, they consider them to be terrorists. They are the cousins of the PKK group in um, Turkey, which in the past has committed acts of terrorism and 
also, uh, you know, has, especially in more recent years, has participated in politics and demilitarized. Um, but I think there's still some conflict there. But the Turks had, you know, some reason to worry about what the Kurds were trying to achieve. If you look at the geography of Syria, most of all the population centers are all in the west of the country. Right. So when America and our allies started all this war in 2011 and 12 there, the Syrian Kurds essentially, they never, I think they they fought one big battle with the, uh, you know, so-called revolution against the government. But other than that, they didn't. Other than that, they essentially just declared autonomy and sat the whole thing out and tried to, you know, tend their own little garden. They called it Rojava. It's not a nation state because they're like anarcho-leftists, anarcho, not exactly anarcho-syndicalists, but they used to be communists. And then they adopted the ideology of a leftist radical American uh, thinker named Murray Bookchin, who is, you know, along the lines of a Noam Chomskyite type of a, yeah. you know, libertarian far leftist type, um, uh, sort of what they call themselves. And, you know, again, then the Islamic State put them at real threat. And then Obama finally then dispatched the DOD to back them against the Islamic State. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting to see how all the hawks had said what a horrible disaster it was going to be if America withdrew from there and turned them over to the Turks. Well, what happened was they cleansed the border region for like a good 30 miles or so. It was ugly, and a few hundred people were killed at least. But then the deal was made that everybody knew was coming anyway, which was essentially a deal between the Kurds and the Syrian government that they would bring the Syrian army in there, and then the Russians stepped in for their part and said, you know what, instead of the Turks doing it, we'll do it, kind of. And they sort of stepped in in the middle ground, too, in order to essentially create a its peaceful sectarian cleansing, essentially. Now, the real question, I haven't seen updates on this. I really should read into this. Uh, I don't know what's the latest news on this over, say, like the last few weeks. But one of the plans was that Erdogan, the presidente, I guess, if you want to call him that, of Turkey— he had threatened to take all his Arab Syrian refugees and move them into that space mm. in a giant relocation program to create this Arab buffer zone between Turkey and the Syrian Kurds. And I don't know if they had followed through on that at all. And I don't know how those people could be expected to want to stay when they right. can go home now. The war's over from almost everywhere except the Idlib province now. Yeah. So. I'm not really sure, you know, what's the status of that. But then, so there's no reason to stay. Yeah. So Donald Trump says, let's go ahead and go now. And then the entire American military and national security establishment screams this entire concocted line that the Turks are going to kill every last Kurd now, and it's going to be all your fault. And Trump ended up sort of backing down mm. because, and not. By reinst- uh, you know, reoccupying Kurdistan or moving troops back into Kurdistan, but he moved them back into eastern Syria. And apparently all it took was this horrible guy, General Jack Keane, who was one of the main so-called thinkers behind the Iraq surge and the Afghanistan surge, um, who uh, both of which were total catastrophes, um, who essentially went on TV and then went to the White House and met with Trump. I think with Lindsey Graham, I need to reread that thing. I forgot. I just read the headline of that one, I guess. Um, but I've been, I've, I've seen it referred to. Um, but they, I think they went to the White House and talked to him and said, "Listen, if we don't occupy those oil fields, 
then somebody else will. Right. So it's not about we get that oil and we're going to be rich and we get money for free, this kind of thing. That The idea is – and they explain this in the papers too. That The thinking is that if we leave, then the Syrian government will retake possession of those oil fields. And then they will be able to use the money generated to rebuild their country. Right. But we don't want that. And the reason we don't want that is because as part of our maximum pressure against Iran campaign, we like seeing Syria dependent on Iran. And Iran forced to transfer all this wealth to them and have them as this burden and responsibility that they don't want and are stuck with. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we want to keep the oil out of the hands of the Syrians, which is, of course, all just a lot of words around the fact. We're talking about depriving this money from the civilian population of right. the country that's been through this horrible war and whose infrastructure has been almost completely destroyed. Yeah, I and mean, stuff and by the way sorry one more thing about that the irony of course is why do they do this again as obama told jeffrey goldberg in the atlantic to weaken iran yeah. well, that was why they did this in the first place they sided with al-qaeda and all it did was it drove syria deeper into its relationship with iran where now they're not friends and allies now syria is a dependent on iran but then now they want to say oh yeah no good that's what we wanted and, and we want to stay there and keep the oil out of there to keep it that way, to, to, for Iran to increase their influence in Syria because it's costly. And, and then, by the way, if they really start moving material through there, we can blow it up. And so that's their excuse to stay in eastern Syria okay. after all of this. Yeah, and then uh, I was just going to make a point um, just regarding, like, the civilians are affected by all of this. Like— Especially a lot of people on the right. I, I listen to a lot of the likes of like Ben Shapiro just to see what their perspective is on foreign policy. And I mean, the claims like about uh, sanctions are almost in a sense like they don't consider that people are affected by them at all. It's just like government hurting government, but they don't realize that it's taken out on the people of those governments. It's it's very it's very strange. I don't I don't really understand how. I mean, maybe. I'm assuming they know that it hurts the civilians, and I just – I don't know if they just don't care, but – Well, you know, there's not too much coverage really of the effect of that right. on people a lot of times. So, um, you know, I don't know about Shapiro. I don't know very much about him or paying yeah. attention. But by and large, I think it's right that most people don't really understand mm -hmm. the real effect of this on people. But – you know, it's now it's famous, at least among anti-war people, that in the 1990s, his secretary of state, um, Madeleine Albright, Bill Clinton's secretary of state, Madeleine Albright, told 60 Minutes that even though reports were that 500,000 children had been deprived to death under the sanctions, yeah. and it was really more like three, but still. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, she was asked, hey, listen, that's more people than died at Hiroshima. I mean, are you sure that the price is worth it? And Madeleine Albright said, well, we think the price is worth it. Yeah. And that that didn't get a lot of attention here, but it got a lot of attention in the Middle East, that that's the way that the Americans think. And I forget if that was the exact quote. I'm, I think that was the quote that bin Laden referred to and then said, oh, yeah, well, how come – that your blood is blood, but our blood is water. Right. That's not true. You're going to find out. You're going to see. And he talked about that in his uh, declaration of war against the United States in 1996 and in 98. He talked about the economic war against mm -hmm. Iraq, which was fought in the name of making the Iraqi people so desperate 
that they would all rise up and overthrow Saddam Hussein, even though we encouraged them to do it when they did have a chance and then stabbed him in the back and let him kill them all. Now, it was an absolute absurdity. It was a mathematical impossibility, and they knew it, that the people of Iraq could ever overthrow the Hussein regime under those current circumstances. And yet the policy remained. Bush Sr. said before he ever left power, the Bill Clinton government just continued it all the way through. We will never lift these sanctions until Saddam Hussein was gone. And then in practice, that meant until after we invade and overthrow them ourselves. And then look at our economic war against Cuba, our economic war against North Korea, both of which have failed to bring regime change in more than 70 years. Oh, well, 60, more than 60 years. I don't know. I can't count. But (laughs) is it? Yeah, it was uh, 59 in Cuba. So what, that's 1960, so that's, yeah, 40, and then 20, so that's 60 years. Um, and um, and then look, again, our policy in Yemen includes an absolute and total economic war along right. with an air campaign yeah, and I, along with backing al-Qaeda mercenaries on the ground. Right. And that doesn't force the people of Yemen to overthrow their government for us. If anything, it just and then look at what's going on in Iran right now, where people are suffering and dying. Their economy's destroyed. Price inflation, of course, as all good libertarians understand how disruptive price inflation mm-hmm. is for causing bubbles and destroying savings and making it so difficult for people to calculate profits and losses over time. And all of these kinds of things, it completely ruins their economy. And then you have this, too. And uh, just actually right before we started talking, I was wrapping up an interview with the great Ryan McMacken from the Mises Institute, mm. who was talking, we were talking all about how the people of Iran right now are facing massive shortages of food and especially medicine. And you're talking about, you know, diabetes medicine, chemotherapy for children and old people and whoever you might love dying of cancer, civilians, innocent civilians. And the thing is, America doesn't put sanctions on medicine. It's just that we control the SWIFT. Uh, global, you know, monetary exchange system. Right. And we, our treasury and our Federal Reserve have, you know, economic dominance essentially over every other government and every corporation on the planet. Right. And if you tangle with the U.S. Treasury, you just don't trade with Iran. You just don't deal. And that includes the world's biggest shipping companies who you would think have the lawyers who could figure out how we can do this and we'll take goods from somewhere and we'll bring them to Iran for money. Nope. They just say, forget it. Let's just sail to Australia instead. And it just doesn't happen. It doesn't get there. And innocent people are dying. And if you listen to the the American government, they explain perfectly. Their strategy is not war. Their strategy is not a CIA coup d'etat. Their strategy is regime collapse, which means economic strangulation of the population until they rise up and overthrow their own government. And the model, the imagination that they're applying is the fall of the Soviet Union. That essentially, the thing is just going to evaporate and go away. Even though that wasn't the result of American sanctions. That was them acting like we're acting now. Imperial overextension is what that was, right? And the idea that, and, and again, look at the models. North Korea, we're on our third song, uh, our third Kim in a row now. <laughs> Um, in Cuba, the Castros are gone, but their legacy lives on in yeah. the regime there. 
um, and in Yemen, we're five years into a genocidal war and not one iota closer to overthrowing the government that, uh, you know, took over the capital city five years ago. And it just doesn't work. It doesn't right. work. We keep doing it anyway. And, you know, I'll tell you a funny story. Andrew Coburn, the great journalist Andrew Coburn, wrote a story about at the end of World War One, the British bureaucracy had just finally perfected the mechanism of enforcing their blockade against the Germans. And then the war was over. And they said, you know what? Let's just keep the blockade because what are we going to do? Close down this entire government agency we just built? And so they just kept it, and they starved millions of Germans straight into the arms of the Nazis. Yeah. Seems to be the the law of unintended consequences every single time. Um, but, uh, yeah, just to finish up, I know you have to go soon. Um, I was just wondering if what, what you see in the future. I know I know Khomeini is uh, he's aging. We just killed the second most powerful person, or people are saying at least in Iran. Does it seem as if we're, we are wanting to get involved further? We, I mean, obviously we really like the we like when things are disordered. But um, on top of that, is there anything that a U.S. citizen can do to, to help? I know there are certain people that you and I might agree with that we could support, but can you kind of speak on that? Um, as far as Iran goes, I think that the government there is pretty stable. And I think that the more that it's the Americans who are the ones going after them, the more they're able to exploit that fact, blame all their problems on us, which they have plenty of their own problems. They get to spin everything as the Yankees' fault and that kind of thing, as long as we're intervening there. Right. I think, broadly speaking, in the whole Middle East, if we really wanted the people of the Middle East to really be more like us in terms of embracing self-government and natural individual rights and free market capitalism and these kinds of things, then we would behave that way ourselves and we would show them the way and we wouldn't have much trouble because in almost every one of these countries, from West Africa to Pakistan, they have extremely young populations where you have a lot of times you know, under 30 are the majority of the population of the country and this kind of thing. There's no reason in the world why they should all want to live in the 1700s or even the 1900s. You know, this is the 21st century now. And if America were to essentially just adopt a non-interventionist foreign policy, which is not isolationist, Thomas Jefferson, the third president, the author of the Declaration of Independence in his farewell address said, or was it his inaugural address, said, we should speak, we should seek, I think it was his farewell address, we should seek peace, commerce, and honest friendship with all nations and entangling alliances with none. That is the American way. That's not isolationism at all. That means a Swiss foreign policy right. where we don't, we don't turn our back to the rest of the world. We embrace them. We don't sanction the rest of the world. We trade with them. Right. We just don't fight them. And we stay out of other countries' business. And um, you know, if, if you take at face value the claims of the motives for the Americans in charge of this policy, that they're just trying to spread democracy in the American way and all of these things, then we can certainly see now in the year 2020, looking back, hindsight cliches and all, that what they did has been entirely and completely counterproductive and that they really believed in liberty and they really believed in markets then they would have been selling people freedom on the open market right. for whatever they'd pay for it. And, and uh, they'd have made a hell of a lot more progress. So I actually am very optimistic about the possibilities for the future. Um, and 
you know, where America stays out, things have a better and better chance of improving. I right. think beyond question. As far as what people can do, I don't know. My thing is try to learn the truth and tell the truth. And the reality is that we have no good reason to fight. That's why they're always lying. That's why they spent so much time trying to scare your mom into thinking Saddam was going to give chemical weapons to Osama. So she would panic and go, oh, my God, I hope the government will protect me from these monsters. But the thing is that how dare they? Yeah. You know, none of this stuff is true. And there's no need that we have to fight these wars. And so if people are willing to just say, hold it, hold it, hold it, that's just not true. OK, let me tell you about the Ayatollah. All right. He ain't no threat to you, and he ain't no threat to me, and here's why. If you just tell the truth, then that'll go a long way to really disarming the narrative here. After all, they lie to us about everything, yeah. about everything. These same agencies who tell us about who our enemies are around the world, they just spent three years telling us our president was a secret Russian agent. <laughs> okay? They they pretended that David Koresh was going to march on downtown Waco and take it over. Yeah. They're liars. They're stupid. We yeah. don't have to believe them. And look, and we already know. Everybody knows. USA is the superpower. We're number one. Yeah. Well, then how could we be at such threat? The answer is we're not. The answer is we really are a superpower. Mm -hmm. We have two oceans and... We have an armed population, and even without a standing army at all, the American people are safe from here to eternity from foreign threats. There is no one. It would take China 50 years to build the ships they'd need to bring an invasion army to these shores, and right. they wouldn't get further than San Diego. Give me a break. Mm -hmm. there are, you know, Ron Paul told the Washington Post back in 2008, you kidding me? We could defend this country with a couple of good submarines. <laughs> simple as that yep. and that is the truth you're laughing just because of how shocking it is to hear someone put it in plain language right. 11 carrier battle groups don't need a single one how do you like that mm -hmm. you know and we can see look at all the freedom you've lost look at all the economic disruption you don't have to be a libertarian to agree it's just the plain fact the plain truth the empire is the most deadly enemy of the republic. Yep. It's not al-Qaeda. It's not Iran. It sure as hell ain't Russia. It's the U.S. government, and its empire is the thing that threatens us the most. It yep. does the most to disrupt our society, what's good about it that we all seek to preserve. Yep. Couldn't be more obvious than that. All right. Well, thank you so much, Scott. Um, do you want to just say where people can find you uh, and – then we'll go because sure. I know that you have to get going. Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm actually a couple minutes late. I'm antiwar.com slash Scott for my articles. I'm editorial director there. Uh, libertarianinstitute.org slash Scott for um, my show and my uh, articles there at the Libertarian Institute. I'm the founder and director there. I got the great Sheldon Richmond, Pete Quinones, and other great guys there, libertarianinstitute.org. And then my show is the Scott Horton Show. That's at scotthorton.org. I got more than 5,000 interview archives going back to 2003 for you there. I'm on uh, Sunday mornings on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Um, for anti-war radio. And I wrote a book called Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, which is also available in audiobook. And I'm the editor 
of the great Ron Paul, the Scott Horton Show interviews 2004 through 2019. All of the transcripts of all 39 interviews I've done of Dr. Paul and plus a speech I gave about how much I love the guy too. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Sure thing. Thank you very much for having me.